You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for joining me. Hey, George. It's great to be here. I really was excited to talk to you because you've been through just endless transformation. I think it's a perfect example of "quote unquote" digital transformation not having an end state because I think that you've been I've been you've been through about five or six just major different transformations for different reasons, and I wanted to explore those a little bit with you. Do you want to start by maybe just giving the high level like what what those big transformation milestones were? Yeah, and and it, you know we were just talking about this as right? we prepared for the show and. You know, I didn't hadn't thought about it that way, but over the the nine virtually nine years I've been at Logged Me In, it has been change after change. Partially, it's tech, it's software, and change is constant. But we also went through a number of a series of milestones, like you say. So the first one when I joined was was really a probably more classical sales marketing digital transformation around our you know top of funnel and our and our sales processes. And then as we were growing at the time. You know, we we had a very U.S. centric culture and and process, and and I and I moved overseas for a couple of years to work in the U.K. and got a different perspective on how do we change our processes and our systems to account for the different you know global cultures that we have in in the company and our and our global markets and customers. And then we went through a period of of significant and rapid acquisition. So we grew from probably around eight hundred to three thousand employees in the space of eighteen months, and most of that was sort of overnight. So then the transformation you know imperatives really became consolidation. Validation and simplification and, and you know, reducing overlap and, and tech and org debt. And then most recently, like everybody else, we went through a transformation driven by the pandemic, right? And how do we switch to remote working? And how does that change our ways of working and becoming a little bit more of a digital culture to facilitate remote working? And then sort of in parallel, and as a backdrop of that, we also went from a public company to a private company. And that is also a pretty significant driver of transformation activities and in a very different backdrop than, than being a public company. So yeah, it's been, it's, been a, it's been a long journey. It doesn't feel like a long time because I'm always in the thick of something urgent and pressure-filled, but in, in totality, it's, it's, been, it's been a hell of a ride. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and kind of chat with you through some of those details. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, there's so many battle scars in there and so many lessons learned. I, I think maybe one place to start, which I I enjoy poking into, is um, when you had the go-to merger acquisition. You had the original Logbian, which was a culture of move fast and break things. And then you had the Citrix culture, was which was, you know, go go slow to go fast. And I think I've personally that you've personally gone through that that journey yourself, right? A little bit, you know, moving from go fast to break things to now go slow to go fast. And I'm I'm just curious to kind of hear both the journey at, at the organization, but also you personally. How did that go? Yeah, I've I've certainly come full circle on some of these, and 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 you were there, George, for some of this, which I appreciate your help at the time. But for those of you listening who may not be familiar. We logged me in and had a reverse Morris trust. And I'll let someone Google and look that up in terms of what that means from an acquisition of transaction with the Gecko division of Citrix. And that is go to, go to meeting, go to webinar, go to training back in 2016, going into 2017. And I mentioned kind of leaping up to 3,000 employees virtually overnight. That was due to this acquisition. So, you know, this division of Citrix was larger than logged me in at the time. But it was going to be our leadership team, our headquarters. And they had a lot of, as you can imagine, coming from a larger company, 
different culture, different way of doing things, different different infrastructure and resources. And we had an acquisition sort of strategy, integration strategy, I should say, of best of both, which meant for the six months going into the the close, we were kind of doing some evaluation of systems, process, you know, personnel, all these types of things in terms of what is the, you know, this, this resulting company, what is the best way to, to drive this forward? And as you can imagine, nobody really wants to say that theirs is worse than the other, except for the really obvious stuff. So I would say like the result may have been, you know, compromised as you'd expect. But to your point, the Citrix sort of DNA, bigger company mentality, they had a lot more plan, pause, plan, execute, go forward, a lot more process, a lot more diligence. And the log me inside of the house, which is where I was coming from, we just got stuff done. Like that was our, that was our kind of like, that's the flag we waved was like, let's just GSD, let's just get it done. I don't care how long it takes. Let's just do it. And a lot of tension when those two, two forces collide. Plus it was an East coast versus West coast thing. So you had, you know, I think if I'm going to stick with the stereotypes here, the, the West coasters thought East coast doesn't know anything about software. East coasters thought all the West coasters like didn't show up for work on time. And like, we're, you know, off surfing all the time. So we had a lot of those dynamics going on as well. <laughs> Lots of green smoothies and surfing is what I would assume. Yes. <laughs> yes. A lot of vegetarian we're, and all the East coasters were rude and in a hurry and, and, and all that. So a lot of dynamics to work through there. And at first, you know, what was on my plate at the time was, we actually had competitive products, right? So LogMeIn sold Rescue, which is a direct competitive go-to assist. And we sold JoinMe, which is a direct competitive go-to meeting. And as a combined company, we had to eliminate internal competition as quickly as possible on the, on the sales team. So there was a real urgency to integrate our sales systems. And we closed on March 1st, 2017. And our Salesforce instances were integrated or consolidated, I should say, by the end of March. So 30 days post-close, we had all the salespeople in the same thing, which I tell people that story or I tell them that fact and they look at me like, well, really? I'm like, yeah, it's either the greatest thing or the hardest thing I've ever done or probably both. And it wasn't without its its scars. And it was a journey in learning how to work with a, with a different culture to come together on a combined goal. It was a lesson in how do you influence and make people believe that something's possible when it's against every fiber in their body that that it, that it would be. And then it's it's learning about how you the mistakes you made along the way that you spent months afterwards trying to clean up and fix. And you know, you said like, you know, my personal journey, I think now, what is it, five years later, you know, I have a different role in a larger company. It's the same company, but it's a larger company. It's a very different place than it was in 2016. And I'm much more of a yeah, 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 let's probably like pump the brakes and like think about what we want to do and plan for it. So, you know, if I could probably go back to my uh, gecko colleagues from 2016 who we butted heads with from time to time, I would say like, you know, you're probably, probably pretty right. I understand how you got there. Like, I understand how that was your approach because some of the things that we moved too fast on and broke definitely caused us pain, you know, that we had to clean up for months afterwards. Yeah, that's interesting. I always like, like to draw the parallel to, you know, what happens at, at the, the company to what happens in your personal life. And that, that best of both thing, the picture I immediately get in my head is you get married and you immediately say, okay, we're just going to pick the best of our uh, art and the best of our furniture. And whoever has the best is that's what we're going to use. But that doesn't account for what does best even mean, right? And it's immediately putting you on that, that rear foot of defensiveness. And, and then it's like, we're not two individuals anymore. We're now forming a couple and we need to compromise and, and determine what our, our joint style is on art and furniture and, and all that good stuff. Well, you're also you're making an assumption, George, that you have taste and nice things because I didn't when I got married I had no nice things apparently 
Well, that actually helps, right? If, if you, but, but, but then when you, when you have two companies that actually do have competitive, you're going to have so much more. It would almost be better to have the blank slate. So in that journey, you said one of the big things was you know, convincing people to think that things are possible that aren't possible. How did you do that? That's a great question. I think it's about trying to boil things down to the simplest component, right? And I know I remember the timeline was so aggressive and I had to convince the leadership that it wasn't going to be perfect. That was probably job one. Hey, we're going to do this. It's not going to be perfect. So lower your expectations. We're, we're solving for speed. We're not solving for perfection. And then once I got them on board, it was about convincing the people doing the work that that imperfection was okay and that we had air cover because you know, we have as a public company at the time, you're, you know, you have a little bit of a buffer in terms of, hey, it's the first quarter after this massive integration. We expect there's going to be some hit to productivity. There's going to be some hit to, you know, how the company is thriving. But you don't get that pass six months later, nine months later. So if we postpone this work, we were going to have to explain that six months later why, you know, sales, sales productivity dipped because oh, we, well, we implemented a new CRM, right? And that wasn't going to be a reasonable alternative. So that was about framing the, the dynamics that we were working in and allowing people to feel like, okay, we can cut some corners. We can, we can trim some scope to get the job done. And then it was like getting the right team put together team, I was very, very fortunate to have some people who shared some probably irrational confidence like I did about the ability to get it done. So I'm forever grateful to those folks. And then doing a really good job of, you know, working agilely as we went. So finding issues, knocking them down quickly, and then moving forward and spending a lot of nights and weekends, to be quite honest. I mean, it was not, it was, it was pretty much heroic effort near the end, the last 30, 60 days. But once once we convinced them that that we could we could do it because it didn't have to be perfect. So you know that old you know eating the elephant kind of thing. You think about it, you're like how can we possibly do this? All right, well you boil it down to here's a time window that we could do, which means that we're going to do this box and we have to we can trim off the scope. And then within that box, what are the most important things we can do? And we could we could break them down into tracks. And then okay, what is what has to be done on day one? What what can be done later? start to de-scope those things. And then people start to get their hands around their, their own lane or their own deliverables. And then it becomes a little bit more manageable, a little bit more approachable. That makes sense. I love irrational competence. It's helped me many times and it's gotten me in trouble many times, but I still love it for whatever reason. <laughs> yes, there's definitely times where I was like, what did I just promise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or your team, more likely saying, what did Chris just promise? You know, and so as part of that, with all of those teams coming together, you had no shortage of systems and duplicate systems and process and duplicate process. So how did you solve that problem? How do you choose what, what are the right systems and the right process across across those two cultures? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I remember back to those conversations. This is where the that sort of the best of both really kind of came to roost, right? Is not not is it Salesforce or something else, but within Salesforce, are we going to follow? your lead routing kind of model or mentality or methodology? Are we going to follow your customer success model? And I think th those actually became easier decisions to make when you boil them down to those individual teams. And we could dictate it by the volume of employees who were, who were following this process, right? If it was something that came from one side of the house with 100 people doing it already, but there's only 20 people doing it on the other side, there was no reason to make 100 people change, right? So we would, we would sort of consolidate into that. There was, uh, you know, what is the value of the, the revenue that we're supporting in that product? How strategically important is it to, to the new company that we are forming? And those were just sort of guideposts in terms of how you want to go. And there's the technical element of it, which was, 
you know, does the solution that's in place, is it scalable? Does it meet our needs? And in some cases you had, you were fortuitous to say like, Hey, George, you guys are doing that. Do you like it? And you'd be like, no, I've hated it since we put it in. I've been dying to get rid of it. And please, we'd love to use yours. And there definitely was examples of that in both directions. Like, no, yours is better, please. But then there was other places where we really had to educate each other, right? So let's sit down and let's talk about here's how our system works. And, and, and Logmeans had a very unique method of sort of driving MQLs to our salespeople and a unique architecture to support that, which was sort of that first transformation activity that I mentioned when I first joined. So we had to introduce that to our Citrix colleagues and say, this is what we built. This is what's worked for us. It's it's driven our growth for the past two years. It's scalable. It can work for the combined company, but it was very new to them. So we really had to spend a lot of time walking them through it, sort of smoke testing, like new, you know, new processes against it and make them understand how it would work for them. Now, I can tell you though, like that was the technical teams that we were working with. And we, we made rapid progress with those folks, like my, my, my counterparts and my new, my new team members. But from we think about rolling that out to the entire sales process, we went from a place where I think LogMeIn at the time probably had just like maybe like 80 salespeople. So not massive. We went from 80 to maybe like 450 salespeople overnight. And we had a like a fine-tuned machine leading up to that where sales and marketing were on the same page with like, you know, SLAs around lead follow-up and metrics and things like that. Very, very activity driven. But we had just beat it into everybody's head for like 18 months leading up to this point. And then when we introduced 400 people who were coming from a different place, it, it, it eroded our sort of ability to be very disciplined on that, right? And it slowed us down. So even though we picked the process, the adoption of the process, the training, the understanding for the broader organization, that set us back like six, eight months. And we had to kind of rebuild that all you know, for the next couple of years after that. So finding the right thing is one thing. Making everyone agree to it and then adopt it is like a, is a challenge that I think... You talk about learnings over the process. What we didn't have at the time was very robust change management, like professionals and processes in place. And I now have a change operations team that works for me because of some of these learnings, right? It's not just about making the change. It's about making sure people understand it and they actually adopt it. Otherwise, sort of undermine your own transformation activities. Yeah, that's a lot of foundational rebuilding. And something I love in those conversations where you're talking about, you know, what's your process? What's our process? One of my favorite and probably also annoying things to do in those meetings is just ask a question like, what does everyone think that a customer is? You know, or what does everyone think a lead is? You know, or like some of the, and you, and you realize that the, the conversation then devolves into like an hour long, oh, we're not even speaking the same language. I'm curious if you had any of those common language stories along the way. No, you just triggered, you just triggered something for me, which was, it was, what is an account? Right, like, is it a company? And in our and in, in, in the LogMeIn world, it was a company, and there was just one purchase per company. Essentially, we'd have all the purchases under one umbrella company. But on the Gecko side, the way that they were set up, they had these things called billing entities, which were like buyers within a company. So you could have more than one because there's departmental buyers and you know divisions and things like that. And it completely complicated our architecture. To this day, right? Because, but we were operating off of different definitions, right? Different, different structures. And they actually didn't have a concept of a, of a company the way we did. And we had to blend those two together. And I think that's an area where best of both may have created a compromise solution that wasn't as good as either. Like both would have been better alone, apart. When we brought them together, it was not as good. The sum of the parts was not as good as the, uh, as the part. So 
Yeah, absolutely. Definitions. That's another great learning is like sit down. The first thing you need to do is go through the really mundane, trivial, what's a customer, what's a lead, what's a company, you know, because you could get three months down the road in a project and realize that you're just not on the same page. You just been throwing around the same terminology. Yeah. And then there are massive icebergs that you hit once you get to them. Right. So yeah, I guess rather than just because those those mismatches tend to just come up organically in conversation along the way. But if you just sit down right out of the gates and say, here are all the words that we use, what the hell do these words mean to you? And what do they mean to us? It might it might accelerate that that common language. So what was the next big milestone and the big change after after this one? Well, I, you know, we continued our acquisition sort of momentum and strategy. We acquired uh, Jive, which was a cloud telephony provider out of Utah. Pretty decent sized company. I think there were about 450 employees at the time. And although it was in the same space, the UCC space, they had a hardware, they had, you know, they had a hardware business. They were heavily involved with, you know, indirect channel and partner sales, things that we, we were not sort of, it's not part of our DNA to that point. And so we had a lot to learn from them at that point. And I think, you know, versus the the uh, the Citrix example where we were saying best of both, I think we just sort of relented on this one and said, hey, you know, we don't do hardware. You guys do hardware. So tell, show us how to do it, right? You work better with partners. Show us how to do it. And that made things, I would say, you know, a bit easier at the outset. And we had other we had other challenges that we didn't face in the past with like, you know, how they worked, how they collaborated. They used, you know, Google Docs and the rest of the company uses Microsoft. So that took, it actually, you know, what I think I learned from from that integration was every every company that gets acquired has its own unique culture and they have their own ways of working and they have their own, you know, like history and they've, they've done the battle scars and there's a sense of camaraderie that they have that they will never have with the broader company. And that's just kind of the way it is. And the only way to get them to feel like they're part of the broader company is to actually start integrating how they work and the systems they use and start building those relationships outside of whatever it is, right? Like we have, and it's not, I'm, I'm not sort of calling out Jive because it was the same with every other company that we acquired. And you could leave them alone, but you leave them alone, they never identify with the parent company, they identify with their original company. So, you know, getting them to adopt Microsoft 365, starting to integrate our products together, starting to, you know, get them into our sales and marketing systems and, you know, having them influence how we might run a campaign or how we, how we you know, throw events for the channel. Those things start integrating the people and the process into the broader company and make us feel like we're one versus, you know, we have these pockets of subcultures, if you want to call them that, right, that take a while to sort of wash out. And it's not like I say that I'm not IBM, right? We're not, we're not blue washing people. We, we, we want to maintain a level of uh, diversity of thinking and of, you know, like they, they should whatever made them unique, they should keep that and maintain that. But sometimes those things get in the way of the broader goals as, a, as an organization. So, you know, I think the learning from there is it's not just about saying, okay, you're now part of this company. It's like, well, we have to actually technically make you part of that company by integrating your workflows, your systems, your tools, and your people kind of all at the same time. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's kind of the digital equivalent of what used to happen when we were all in offices is, you know, when you have a, one team on the third floor and part of the team moves to the fourth floor, all of a sudden the fourth floor folks are, are dead to you, right? Like you don't, you don't have the same relationship that you used to have. And, and it's kind of like the same thing with, with the, you have the Google Docs folks and the SharePoint folks and the SharePoint folks are dead to the, the Google Drive people until you get them all on the same platform. And I feel like executives, a lot of times, 
Yeah, exactly. When you're looking at those consolidations, I think a lot of the focus can sometimes be on efficiency and, and license fees. But it sounds it's really more about that being on the same team, getting the cultures aligned and and using the systems in the process as a little bit as a, a motivator behind that. Yeah, I think the synergies and the savings should always be like, yes, they're they're a huge benefit, but they can't be the driving factor. Like if you go into those if you go into those activities saying we're doing this because it's going to save us money, you're probably going to fail. If you go to them saying, we're doing this because it makes us work better, work smarter, we're more aligned, we drive better employee engagement, we get more done. Oh, and oh yeah, it's also going to save us money. That's the cherry on top. Then that like that's a much better approach because there should be a real reason for employees because em- employees will see right through that anyway. You're just trying to save a buck, right? That How is this helping me? You're just trying to save a buck. So you really have to start with the... What is the benefit to them to get their work done, to do more meaningful work or do more innovative work? And then if the if a company saves money, then they'll, they're happy to hear it. But they don't. At the end of the day, they don't care that much about it, right? So you, you go through all these these acquisitions and transformations, and you're probably getting your legs under you. Things are feeling good, and pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And actually, I should I should mention at the, at the time the pandemic hit, I was in the role of chief of staff to the CEO. So I was in a unique and a different position than I was for the for the rest of these stories. So I had a my role very much very quickly pivoted to how do we make sure that, you know, employee health and safety is number one at the time. Early early pandemic, it's like, hey, kids everyone home, is everyone safe? What do we need to do to make sure that our employees have what they need to stay safe? And being a remote, you know, collaboration connectivity company by nature, it, we, we had a leg up, I'd say, on a lot of people, right? So I wasn't worried about, can our employees work from home? They all could. It was, are they comfortable working from home? And once they're home, can they continue to collaborate and be informed and communicate and get the resources they need? And so, you know, over the, and then as that, as obviously the pandemic continued, we went past like sort of the emergency response phase to a, you know, sort of a continuous here's how we're going to be. We made some big decisions pretty early, which is we're going to keep the, like many companies, we're going to keep the offices closed for you know a year. And then we kept pushing it out, pushing it out. But to give our employees sort of clarity about when, when it, do I need to come back? Do I need to worry about coming back was really what we were hearing. And then we also declared very early over a year ago that we were going to be a remote centric company. So we, we were going to shut down some offices. We were going to, you know, declare that nobody, no, no one who works for LogMeIn is going to have a desk with their name on it anymore. And no one's going to work in the office five days a week. And, you know, that, we knew that that wasn't going to work for everybody. Although I think we've been pleasantly surprised that most of our employees are are very happy with that flexibility and it shows through in our engagement surveys. And, and we've seen some other folks in the space say that and then sort of backtrack or walk it back a little bit in the last six months. Well, actually, no, we want you to come back in the office. And, and, and I think that uh, there's been some blowback on that. And, and I'm, proud of, I'm proud of the position we took. But in order to make that work, you know, some of the activities we need to undergo was, first of all, like, what is our policy? Where can I work? Right. You said work, work from anywhere. Is it really anywhere? Can I move to Switzerland? Is that okay? Can I, you know, and so we had to put some guardrails in place for our employees to know, like, yes, you can move. I moved from Massachusetts to Vermont. That was okay. Could I have moved to, you know, New Zealand? Probably not. We don't have, you know, we don't have an entity in New Zealand. I don't think it makes much sense for me time zone wise. So, you know, we had to help people out through those conversations. Could be a lot of fun, but I'm here to work, George. (laughs) Then, and we had the like, you know, and then you build on that and you say like, well, 
it's okay, like when you think about tax and visa and all these other complexities that most employees don't think about when you're just going to the office every day. We have employees in Europe and they, you know, they work in Ireland, but they have you know, their families are in France or in Sweden or whatever they are. And they want to go home for the holidays. And they, and they had the opportunity last year to say, instead of going home for two days, can I go home for like three weeks and just work there? And so we, we worked through that and said, yes, we looked at all the visa stuff and said, yes, go home, you know, work for a week in Sweden, take a week off and you get the holidays off anyway. And that's a huge benefit to our employees, right? That really starts to embrace that flexible, flexible work style. So then it was, so first it was, what can I do and how can I do it and where can I do it? And then it really started to pivot into like, all right, well, how do we work differently in a remote world? And we started leaning into training around like how to be a better remote manager. How do we, how do we have people think about, you know, productivity metrics and trust versus, you know, butts and seats, you know, metrics. How do we break people of those sort of behaviors? How do you drive a asynchronous communication culture? you know, by embracing more writing. And we just, we fortuitously had some people come over from Amazon in the last couple of years where, you know, I think people probably read about the Amazon writing culture, no PowerPoint there. And we've embraced components of that. And it's been super helpful in a remote world because you can come to a meeting and you have a, you know, you have a document written out and it makes the decision-making much faster, but it also leaves behind this asset for anyone who wasn't in the meeting to read and understand and understand the context behind it. So asynchronous communications, how do we, how do we be more sympathetic to the time zone and working hours of our colleagues? So started putting things in our signatures, like, Hey, I may be responding to emails at 11 o'clock at night because that's what works for me. does not mean that you need to respond to this email now. Like you respond to it when you're, when you're ready. So it's about empathy. It's about understanding the flexibility of others because it's all everyone's definition of flexibility is different. So we have to really understand that. But it's about making sure that we raise the bar on what common ground is because it's not the hallway conversation in the office anymore. It's about that like that paper trail or that digital paper trail that you're leaving behind of work being done, progress being made, or decisions being made. That's sort of like that's been the last eighteen months. That that evolution is still going. Our offices are reopened, but. We're learning how do people want to use them, right? Like the, the, the usage patterns have changed, the utilization has changed, and we have a lot to learn, but we're just going into it as uh, we, don't know, we, we don't know. We don't have all the answers, so we're going to learn from our employees and continue to continue to evolve as we go. That's awesome. I, I'll, we haven't talked about this, but I'm curious if we're going to be aligned on this. Is uh, How many of those kind of in, on, on-site, off-site norms are you pushing down to the team level? Because my hypothesis, the more you can put down to the team level, kind of the well, you do need to set the guardrails at a high level. If the team can decide when they're going to be in the office, when they're not, rather than kind of global mandates across the country, the company, it tends to, I think, be a better approach. Are you, are you doing that? I think we're aligned because we haven't pushed anything down. Like we haven't pushed anything down. We've, we've given some, you know, I'd say high level guidance that says, you know, the one thing we've been consistent with is going to the office should be intentional in some way, right? Like, it is my belief that going to the office just to get your work done isn't compelling enough for someone to sit through the commute or get on an airplane or whatever they have to do to get there. Just to sit at a desk and get their work done, it's not reason to be there. That's how I feel personally. I think that's how most of my team feels. So you have to have some intentional reason to be there. Is it a workshop to solve a specific problem? Are you celebrating a big win? Is a company all hands, a big, you know, an award ceremony, whatever it might be? Or sometimes it's just the fact that you hear that. Some other teams are doing those activities. So you feel like if I go there, I might be able to catch up and see like five or 10 different people that I wouldn't normally see. So that might be a compelling reason to get there. So there's this like, 
I equate it to like when you found out, you know, if you think back when you're younger and you're like, I don't know if I want to go to that party, but then you find out like all you, all these other friends are going to that party. And now suddenly that party seems like a really cool place to be. That's how I feel like people are approaching going to the office these days. Like, well, who's going to be there? But we have not told teams when and why they should be in the office. We have let that, let them decide because I think that's going to help us learn a lot more, right? Because teams are going to approach it from different angles. Some things are going to work. Some things are not. And once we have those lessons learned, we will start sharing those around the org. And the one thing to remember, though, even now, offices are open, we are still operating in a pandemic state, right? We are still at like 50% capacity. We still have social distancing measures. We still don't have all the amenities open. People, Some people, kids aren't vaccinated yet. They, they don't feel comfortable coming to the office. So for everything that we've done so far, it's all with a grain of salt. Like this isn't really post pandemic world yet, right? I think maybe when, you know, I know we're on the precipice of vaccines for kids. I think once we, once we get past that, that'll be another big milestone where suddenly I think there'll be another batch of employees who feel comfortable coming into the office, you know, and then we'll see where that goes from there. Love it. Yeah. And I love pushing the decisions down to the team because it's really remote or not remote. It just It's all team norms. You know, how do you, how are you guys going to work together? And it's going to be different for a sales team or product team or marketing team. And just giving them the control. And I love being intentional. It's funny, we've we've been remote since beginning, since day one, so almost 18 years at this point. And we were always we would always have clients, they'd say, Okay, so you guys are gonna be here Monday through Thursday, right? Every single week. And we're like, Well, we'll be here when we need to be here and and it's going to be an intentional and that would be a difficult conversation to have uh, in the past, whereas now it's uh, it's a bit easier of a conversation. So I'm glad that, that everyone's kind of maturing in that in that realm. We're all we're all catching up to you. We're all catching up. <laughs> so maybe one note to then finish on is you know how do you feel about transitioning from go fast and break things to then being a go slow to go fast guy? Just personally, it can be maddening sometimes. So I feel like my um, me the individual if if I need to get work done, my general approach is still go fast, get stuff done. Me as a leader trying to have a successful outcome has a very healthy appreciation for the need to pause, assess, discover, ask questions, document, get everyone aligned, and then move forward. So it's a little bit of a constant struggle for me, but I do think there's a happy medium, right? I think there's a way to figure out with the benefit of experience and hindsight to figure out exactly what those icebergs might be in the future that you recognize pull those up to the front and at least sketch out the parameters of what you're trying to do that allows the team to move fast while you fill in the gaps along the way, right? I think the alternative is like, all right, we can't start until we know every single detail and every decision and we have a Gantt chart built out for the whole program. That's not like, I never want to do that, right? I want to be able to say, what are the key assumptions that we need? What are the tenets or what are the guiding principles that everyone who needs to do the work understands? And then make sure everyone's aligned on that and then let each, each team or group kind of run along those rails. And when they start bumping into each other, then you bubble that up for some sort of you know, disposition or understanding. So there's a little bit of a happy medium, but you can't go pell-mell like into the wilderness like I may have probably six years ago. I think that all that there's some, there's some upfront work that has to get done that I have a full-blown appreciation for now. Yeah. And and I think it's it's not a one's better. Back to the earlier points, it's not the best or not. It's time and place. And how do you put the right guardrails around when the right time and the right right place is? Yeah. And how complex of a problem is and how many people do you have? Like, oh, there's so many different variables that go into the, yeah. Yeah, that's great. 
Well, Chris, thanks so much. This is a heck of a journey. A lot of great accomplishments along the way, lessons learned. Always love hearing stories from the trenches. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, my pleasure, George. Happy to be here. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.